This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It has been said that art and the saints are the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith. I don't think it's too hard to see why this might be true. Traditionally, the three deepest experiences of human knowing are mystical, moral, and poetic. Mystical knowledge remains in the soul, tending toward silence, as great uh, 20th century philosopher Jacques Maritain once said. But moral knowledge expresses itself in a life, and poetic knowledge in a work. Things that others can reach out and touch, and through them find their way back to the mysterious sources of that knowledge, and then back out again to the created world and its creator. Goodness and beauty, the gifts of artists and saints, offer us in a special way an invitation to God himself. My own particular Christian tradition is that of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which is probably good news to at least one of you, the one whose name is Shameless Papist. Saw that uh, on my video feed. Uh, and the Catholic Church has had some remarkable things to say about the role of the artist. Let me read now a beautiful paragraph on artistic creativity from the 1992 Catholic Catechism. It's a paragraph that comes at the end of the Catechism's discussion of the Eighth Commandment prohibiting lying. Art for the Christian is inseparable from truth. Here's the passage. Created in the image of God, man also expresses the truth of his relationship with God the Creator by the beauty of his artistic works. Indeed, art is a distinctively human form of expression beyond the search for the necessities of life, which is common to all living creatures. Art is a freely given superabundance of the human being's inner riches. To the extent that it is inspired by truth and love of beings, art bears a certain likeness to God's activity in what he has created. Like any other human activity, art is not an absolute end in itself, but is ordered to and ennobled by the ultimate end of man. Artistic creativity, according to this way of thinking, is a participation in God's own creative action, and so participates also in God as true and good and beautiful. A few years after the publication of the Catechism, uh, John Paul II wrote a letter to artists, a profound reflection on the nature and purposes of artistic creativity. He says many wonderful things there, uh, many of which echo and deepen the passage from the Catechism that I just read. And I recommend the entire letter, which is not too long, uh, to those of you interested in Christianity and art. But since my topic this evening is literature, let me read just a short paragraph that speaks to this in particular. The church has need, especially, of those who can make perceptive, as far as possible attractive, the world of the spirit, of the invisible, of God. On the literary and figurative level, using the endless possibilities of images and their symbolic force. Christ himself made extensive use of images in his preaching, fully in keeping with his willingness to become in the incarnation, the icon of the unseen God. 
literature has therefore a special place in the Christian life. Uh, it shows us, invites us into the world of the spirit, of the invisible, and of God himself. Christianity's literary riches are immense, but given our short time together, I want to think in some detail about two Christian writers, both of whom wrote in the recent past and who each embody in very different ways the vision of Christian literature I'm trying to express. And I hope, too, that they might be at least somewhat familiar to all of you. And, of course, I mean Flannery O'Connor and J.R.R. Tolkien. Born in 1925 in Savannah, Georgia, to Irish Catholic parents from upper-class Southern families, Mary Flannery O'Connor was a quiet, intelligent, quick-witted, and rather contrary girl. A writer from a young age, she caused a minor family scandal at the age of 10 by a collection of satiric and uncomfortably close-to-life vignettes titled simply, My Relatives. It was in the naturalist vein, she wrote later, and was not well received. Shortly before her 16th birthday, her father died of lupus, the disease that would one day claim her own life in 1964 at the young age of 39. After attending the local women's college, she won a place at the Iowa Writers Workshop, followed by a fellowship at Yadu, an artist's retreat in upstate New York. But after five years up north, lupus struck, and at the age of 25, she moved back to Milledgeville, Georgia, to live with her mother at Andalusia, the family dairy farm, where she would remain for the rest of her life. There, she would publish two novels and a generous handful of short stories infused by her Southern Catholic sensibility. And she was already and would remain a daily communicant wherever possible. And with an eye for hard-edged and eternal spiritual truths, Accustomed to reading St. Thomas Aquinas each night before going to sleep, she wrote once to a friend that if my mother were to come in during this process and say, turn off that light, it's late. I, with lifted finger and broad, bland, beatific expression, would reply, on the contrary, I answer that the light being external and limitless cannot be turned off. Shut your eyes. John Ronald Rule Tolkien was born in 1892, English parents in South Africa. At the age of three, his mother brought him and his brothers back to England to visit family, and his father, never in excellent health, died while they were away. His mother supported the two boys on a small income, taught them at home herself, and moved to the bucolic English countryside for the next four years. Four years, wrote Tolkien later, but the longest seeming and most formative part of my life they inspired, among other things, the Shire of the Hobbits. At the end of this time, the small family converted to Catholicism, and after the death of his mother, when Tolkien was 12, he and his brothers were adopted by one of Cardinal Newman's oratorians in Birmingham. A precocious young man who loved languages and myths and legends, Tolkien attended Oxford, studied English. His later essay on the old English poem Beowulf has become a classic married his teenage sweetheart, and lived out his life rather quietly as an Oxford professor of English who intensely loved his faith, his wife and children, and his university work, and who also managed to spend regular hours at night creating languages and mythical worlds and discussing them by day with his friend C.S. Lewis. By the time of his death in 1973, Tolkien was an international celebrity 
most famous, of course, for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. His books, though deeply Christian, inspired thousands of 1960s hippies. And it wasn't unusual at the time to find graffiti claiming Frodo lives or Gandalf for president. That one has made a return in New England, I must say, uh, this fall. His son, Christopher, also an English professor, dedicated his life to editing and publishing his father's papers. And the Tolkien enthusiast now, in fact, most especially just in the last 15 years or so, has access to an extraordinarily deep and magical world with its own mythology, heroes and villains, tragedies and triumphs. Both O'Connor and Tolkien fully express something that I think is the most important feature of Christian literature. When Tolkien was in the midst of writing The Lord of the Rings, he gave a lecture entitled on fairy stories. Tolkien's most important reflection on the nature of his own creative writing and on Christian fiction more broadly. At the end of this essay, Tolkien comes to the final characterization of fairy stories, the consolation of the happy ending. Tragedy is the true form of drama, he says. Its highest function, but the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. Tolkien is here speaking of fairy stories in particular, but eucatastrophe, you as in eu, the Greek prefix meaning good, Eucatastrophe is of much wider application than the otherworldly fantasy Tolkien was describing. It's the mark, so I want to say, of Christian literature as such. The consolation of fairy stories, says Tolkien, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. It is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe or sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, he says, universal final defeat. And in so far is evangelium, good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world. Tolkien's reference here to evangelium is not accidental. As he says later, the eucatastrophe we see in a brief vision may be a far-off gleam or echo of evangelium in the real world. The Gospels contain a fairy story and the greatest and most conceivable eucatastrophe. The joy of eucatastrophe is the, the precious joy that satisfies hope. And Christian literature is, above all, hopeful. This doesn't mean that a Christian story must end happily ever after. As O'Connor's fiction shows, for those of you who have read some of it, a Christian story may be very grim indeed. But whatever tragic circumstances befall the characters, whatever pain and sorrow they must endure, the conclusion of a Christian story, if it does not clearly end in joy, it leaves, at least leaves open the possibility of joy. As Tolkien says, it denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. 
No suffering can extinguish every opportunity for redemption, not even, most of all, the cruel jaws of death itself. We would be hard-pressed, I think, to find a more pure expression of eucatastrophe than Flannery O'Connor's stories and novels. Dark as they seem, full of murders and sneering children and trickster vagabonds, her fiction is nonetheless profoundly Christian, most of all because it is so hopeful. Despite the bloodshed, all of them end with a eucatastrophe, and so all of them, dare I say it, have happy endings. Let's have a particular story before us. The River, an early story, first published in 1953, when O'Connor was 28. It's one of two stories that end with a child's accidental suicide. The plot of The River is straightforward. Harry Ashfield, a boy of four or five years old, is picked up Sunday morning from his house by Mrs. Conan, his babysitter for the day. She takes him to her house, a half-mile walk from the end of the town's streetcar line, where her three boys trick him into letting out a pig who chases Harry, terrified, back to the house. Later that afternoon, Mrs. Conan takes Harry and her children down to the river, where an itinerant preacher is speaking to a small crowd. Listen to what I got to say, you people, he says. There ain't but one river, and that's the river of life, made out of Jesus' blood. That's the river you have to lay your pain in, in the river of faith, in the river of life, in the river of love, in the rich red river of Jesus' blood, you people. It's a river full of pain itself, pain itself, moving toward the kingdom of Christ, to be washed away slow, you people, slow as this here old red water river around my feet. Mrs. Conan suddenly brings Harry to the front and presents him for baptism. Harry's thrust under the water and emerges, spluttering while the preacher says, you count now, you didn't even count before. When Mrs. Conan brings Harry home, his parents are in the middle of another evening party. When the preacher earlier asked Harry about his mother's ailment so he could call on Jesus to heal her, Harry innocently replied, she has a, a hangover. Harry's mother eventually comes in to say goodnight in order to ask what lies you've been telling today. The next morning he wakes up late and wanders around the apartment eating odds and ends. Bored, he calculates that his parents will get up after one in the afternoon. Suddenly he leaves the house, takes the streetcar out of town and returns to the river where he wades in and after a few unsuccessful tries, drowns himself. For an instant, he was overcome with surprise, O'Connor writes. Then since he was moving quickly and knew that he was getting somewhere, all his fury and his fear left him. We could dull the sharp edge of this story by treating it as an allegory. O'Connor is clearly thinking about the way that baptism works, especially the old doctrine of baptism of desire. The story is full of images of death and the devil. Three times Mrs. Conan is called a skeleton, First a speckled skeleton, then a musical skeleton, and finally a woman who stares with a skeleton's appearance of seeing everything. And when Mrs. Conan, her children, and Harry make their way to the river, they look like the skeleton of an old boat. The preacher has a face all bone and red light reflected from the river. 
The pig that chases Harry seems merely a malicious trick until we find a few pages later that Mrs. Conan reads to Harry from an old children's book, The Life of Jesus Christ for Readers Under 12. It was full of pictures, O'Connor writes, one of a carpenter driving a crowd of pigs out of a man. They were real pigs, gray and sour looking, gray and sour, two words that pick up the description of the Conan's all too real pig who nosed its gray, wet, and sour face into Harry's. And as Harry is drowning himself, he sees the skeptic from yesterday's crowd, Mr. Paradise, bounding after him like a giant pig and shouting, trying, of course, to save him from the river. The first piece of dialogue we get is the claim that Harry ain't fixed right. His arm is hung up in the sleeve of his coat. Well then, for Christ's sake, fix him is the father's reply. An oath repeated later when after Mrs. Conan announces to Harry's mother that the preacher prayed for her to be healed, she replies, healed? Healed of what, for Christ's sake? And his father says farewell that first morning by saying, goodbye, old man, perhaps a reference to the old man Adam of the Apostle Paul, who says in Colossians, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his practices, and have put on the new man, who is being renewed in knowledge at the image of his creator. Harry himself is described as mute and patient, like an old sheep waiting to be let out. And he tricks Mrs. Conan into calling him by a new name, the name with which the preacher baptizes him. So we can ease the pain and shock of this story of a neglected little boy who accidentally drowns himself, by reading the story as a dramatization in the trappings of the American South of the mystery of baptism. And the symbolism is no doubt there, but I think we fail to do O'Connor justice if we take such an easy way out. If the story is any good, it has to work on a literal level as well as a symbolic one. I find that readers sometimes react to this story on a literal level with something approaching horror. That is, the story must be a tragedy and describes some of the many ways we can fail our children. But, and, and I fear I've not conveyed this at all, the story is without a doubt a comedy and not a tragedy. Who can resist the humor of Mrs. Conan's disdain for an abstract painting she sees on the wall of Harry's house? I wouldn't have paid for that, she says, nodding at the painting. I would have drew it myself. And then a few paragraphs later, she gives the watercolor another look and concludes, I wouldn't have drawn it. This story is a comedy, not just in the details, though its details are very funny, but as a whole, for it ends happily, doesn't it? If we take Christianity seriously, then little Harry makes his way to heaven by the last page. Of course, we can respond that a little boy isn't supposed to get to heaven that way. Harry is ignorant, no doubt and takes what the preacher says at face value and doesn't see that he's drowning himself. So we can't think of him as committing the sin of self-destruction. But wouldn't things have been better had they turned out differently? I suppose that must be true. Had his parents loved him properly, or if he had understood more the world and the way Jesus wants to save us, he wouldn't have thought that the way to Jesus was downriver. There are all sorts of ways of imagining a better life and death for Harry. But what about the Harry that we see in this story? This particular little boy 
who might at any time be smitten by God's providence, struck by lightning, run over, overcome by illness, killed by any number of things that bring down thousands of people the world over every day. How exactly is this particular boy's death a tragedy for him? Assuming, of course, that the Christian religion is a true one, and that we should not expect Harry to be anywhere else than, surely, with Jesus that very day in paradise. You catastrophe, indeed. O'Connor's stories abound with this kind of ending. Hazel Motes, the protagonist of her first novel, Wise Blood, dies of exposure, followed by a blow to the head, but only at the conclusion of a lengthy spiritual purification. Ruby Hill, in a stroke of good fortune, comes to the slow and terrifying realization that she's pregnant, but the reader is left with the clear impression that pregnancy is the best thing that ever happened to her. Three young arsonists set alight Mrs. Cope's woods in the conclusion to a circle in the fire, and that seems the only thing that could possibly shake Mrs. Cope out of her spiritual complacency. And even though Mrs. May ends Greenleaf gored to death by a bull, she dies with the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored, but who finds the light unbearable. As bent over the bull, she appears to whisper some last discovery into the animal's ear. The story is, I think, among other things, a rewriting of Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven. I've been describing O'Connor's stories as eucatastrophic, hopeful in the Christian eschatological sense, each one ended in some fashion by a fierce encounter with God's grace. O'Connor's characters are broken, sinful people, but she loves them nonetheless, and she always offers them the chance of salvation. Here is how she herself explains the hard, unyielding texture of her stories. Everyone needs, of course, she says, to be lifted up. There's something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so. But what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether. And so he's forgotten the price of restoration. There are ages when it is possible to woo the reader. There are others when something more drastic is necessary. O'Connor wrote as she did, if we take this paragraph seriously, because as a Christian, she needed to write hopeful fiction fiction that held out at least the possibility of redemption. But to make such spiritual realities visible in stories that would work for her readers, she needed the tools of distortion, tools that resulted in fiction that is wild, violent, and comic. I've been speaking about Flannery O'Connor's stories as compelling, even pure examples of hopeful, eucatastrophic Christian fiction. But O'Connor's explanation of the importance of the grotesque in her stories, the absence of wooing, and the focus on pain and one's preparation for death, will help me explain two other important characteristics of Christian literature, characteristics that are, I think, in a certain amount of conflict with one another. Tolkien's description of eucatastrophe appears in the concluding pages of On Fairy Stories. At the very beginning of that essay, Tolkien remarks that it is man who is, 
in contrast to fairies, supernatural and often of diminutive stature. Whereas they are natural, far more natural than he, such is their doom. The road to fairyland is not the road to heaven, he said, nor even to hell, I believe, though some have held that it may lead thither indirectly by the devil's tide. There is something non-eternal for good or ill about fairyland, according to Tolkien, as if fairyland is about fairyland and not about something else. O'Connor wants to pull into focus all the supernatural things tied to the everyday world of our senses, heaven and hell, angels and demons, sin and grace. Fairyland, by contrast, is content just with itself. Tolkien, for example, clearly loved the magical, the enchanted, the fantastic, and the adventurous. If I could risk an extension of his vocabulary, I would say that he loved the pagan. By pagan, I don't mean ancient polytheistic religion. I mean instead all of creation, insofar as it dwells within us rejoicing in its glorious splendor, even though aware of its own mysterious imperfection. But don't think here Tolkien is somehow preferring the specifically pagan to the Christian, for it is true, he says, that only the Christians have made Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, utterly beautiful, a wonder for the soul. The Christian poets have fashioned nymphs and dryads of which not even Greece ever dreamt. For Tolkien, the true Christian can out-pagan the pagans. How so? By celebrating the exquisitely bittersweet beauty of everything around us in all its transient glory. The Christians have the fullest possible appreciation of the splendor of the natural world because we know that God deigned to join it to himself in the person of his son. The beauty of the sensuous, its tastes and textures, the songs of birds, the blues of the sky, the moist pungency of freshly turned earth. Even though Christians celebrate them even more than any pagan could, knowing that they come from God, just because they do come from God, they are worth joyfully celebrating, joyfully experiencing in their own right as things in themselves. I think this is the kind of joy Tolkien takes in the natural world and that he tries to create anew in his invented worlds. Although Tolkien is best known for hobbits and rings, I want to retell you a lesser known short story of his uh, entitled Leaf by Niggle. And again, written in the midst of his work on the Lord of the Rings to show you what Tolkien is thinking about. Niggle is a little man who had a long journey to make, but he did not want to go and he put off his preparations. He was also a painter, though not a very good one. One picture in particular eventually captured all his attention. It had begun with a leaf caught in the wind and it became a tree. Then all around the tree and behind it, through the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out. And there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. Niggle lost interest in his other pictures, and his canvas for this picture grew so that he needed a ladder to reach the top portions. 
When neighbors called, he was polite, but underneath he was always thinking of his painting. As time went on, his garden became neglected, and Niggle's time became even more precious as his troublesome journey grew closer. One day, his neighbor Parrish knocked and begged Niggle to go to town for the doctor for his sick wife, he himself being unable to go because of his lame leg. Niggle went, cursing under his breath, and fetched the doctor in the middle of a storm. Parrish's wife, of course, turned out not sick at all. Parrish and his wife were accustomed to ask many favors of Niggle for the sake of their own convenience. But Niggle caught a terrible cold and hadn't yet recovered before the driver came to take him on his long-awaited journey. After some years in a hospital where he was made to do various jobs, and which eventually he did very well, he was sent away to a new part of the country. And upon arrival, he falls off his bicycle, for before him stands the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art and also to the results but he was using the word quite literally. After some time improving the land, Parrish himself joins him at his tree. Niggle's picture, says Parrish in astonishment. Did you think of all this, Niggle? I never thought you were so clever. Why didn't you tell me? Another man says he tried to tell you long ago, but you would not look. He had only got canvas and paint in those days and you wanted to mend your roof with them. This is what you and your wife used to call Niggle's nonsense or that daubing. But it did not look like this then, not real, says Parrish. No, it was only a glimpse then, says the man. But you might have caught the glimpse if you had ever thought it worthwhile to try. And then Niggle departs, leaving his tree for the mountains. He was going to learn about sheep, the story continues, and the high pasturages, and look at a wider sky, and walk ever further and further towards the mountains, always uphill. Even little Niggle in his old home could glimpse the mountains far away, and they got into the borders of his picture. But what they are really like and what lies beyond them, only those can say who have climbed them. Sometime later, there's a conversation held about Niggle's country. It's proving very useful indeed as a holiday and a refreshment. It is splendid for convalescence. And not only for that, for many, it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I'm sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. I hope the theme in this story of co-creation with God is clear enough. Niggle's painting is, in a way, Tolkien's own mythological world, of which the Lord of the Rings is only a small part. And by inventing his tree and its country, Niggle's continues in his own way the divine creative activity of God himself. What makes this story so thoughtful, though, is the way Niggle's painting is taken up into the eternal. I can't help but assume that Niggle's journey by train to the hospital is his death and his long work afterwards at various odd jobs in the hospital 
a kind of purgatory. His time then in the countryside, in the company of his completed tree, after he leaves the hospital, is curious. I myself think it is the beginning of heaven, the foothills, so to speak, before the divinity proper of the mountains. Tolkien is suggesting that the artist, the sub-creator, is adding to creation and as such is contributing to heaven itself. We would be hard-pressed to find a more powerful affirmation of the created world, in this case, the created world of the artist. For Nichols' painting is good in itself and worth spending time on, and so good, in fact, that it gets taken up into eternity. If I could hazard a one-word name for the kind of hopeful Christian writing Tolkien gave us, I would call it incarnational. That is, it has a special appreciation for the created world, the things that are not God, though they are of God. Flannery O'Connor is, I think, interested in something else. Instead of incarnational stories, she always makes us see the inadequacy of the natural world, its impoverishment in contrast with the divine. While we are alive on this earth, we will suffer, for we are a pilgrim people, and we should not expect real joy before we die and rise again. On the contrary, like the early martyrs, should we not rather yearn to die, especially to die for Jesus? Is it not dangerous to linger over the good things of the earth? This place is not our true home, and its fruits will never satisfy us. Consider the river again, and the language O'Connor uses to describe her characters and their world. I've already mentioned the gray and sour pigs, as well as the skeletal appearance of Mrs. Conan, the preacher, and the line of figures walking to the river. Here is how she describes the sun, an important character in almost all of her fiction, over the course of the story. First appears the gray morning, later the white Sunday sun, climbing fast through a scum of gray cloud as if it meant to overtake them. Later it is rolling away ahead of them. When Harry is at the river, he sees the pieces of the white sun scattered in the river. And later, the air was so quiet he could hear the broken pieces of the sun knocking in the water. The next morning, the sun came in palely, stained gray by the glass. Finally, on his way to the river for the last time, the sun was pale yellow and high and hot. The worms lined up alongside sun include pieces, scattered, stained, glass, pale, and so on. Words that clearly convey the omnipresent and penetrating power of the sun, rather than its gentle beauty. The human characters, for their part, are glum and limp, looming, toneless, or jaunty, with collapsed mouths. They glance severely with eyes still and gray as glass and stern faces. The most common word describing speech besides he or she said is muttered. No one ever smiles, though now and again someone refrains from smiling, like the three boys who looked at Harry silently, not smiling. Instead, people grin a word with many more layers of complexity than the word smile. Grin comes from the Old English, grenian, meaning 
to bear the teeth in anger or pain, and is probably related to the word groan. Curiously, it's also cognates with the old high German Grenin to mutter. And I do like to think O'Connor might have had this connection in mind. The tension O'Connor builds into this story by means of her vocabulary is so powerful that the reader, like Harry himself, feels the release of the final paragraph where the language smooths out. The waiting current caught him like a long gentle hand and pulled him swiftly forward and down. For an instant, he was overcome with surprise. Then since he was moving quickly and knew that he was getting somewhere, all his fury and his fear left him. If we are absorbed in this story as fully as its author must have intended, then we should feel the same way. We are leaving this world behind, and thank goodness. It is quite simply, I think, impossible to imagine Tolkien's Middle-earth described in this way. O'Connor's stories are powerful in large part because they force us to confront our eternal destiny and to remember how little everything else matters in comparison. God's grace in her world is just like that long gentle hand pulling, always pulling us down and through this world and into the next. O'Connor's prophetic voice cries out to us from the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Her writing demands that we take our life seriously as a journey towards death and judgment. And as the preacher says to Mr. Paradise, glancing towards him with a raised fist, believe Jesus or the devil, testify to one or the other. Tolkien, on the other hand, writes to woo us like a lover offering the beauty and joy of his creations. It's true that these creations reflect supernatural divine realities. They too can be, are surely meant to be, means of ascent to beauty itself, as is Niggle's picture, taken up into the fabric of heaven. But they can work in this way only if they themselves really are beautiful, and so really are worth lingering over for their own sakes. They can be means of grace only insofar as they are also, at least potentially, distractions from our onward journey. There is a reason, after all, that Tolkien's fiction found its way onto the shelves of the hippies, and O'Connor's didn't. All true Christian literature is hopeful, comic in the older, broader sense. But sometimes Christians need prophets who will remind us that we are on a pilgrimage, and sometimes they need lovers who will show us a beautiful, sensuous world redeemed and glorious. All of us, I think, at one time or another need both. I don't mean to simplify all this by suggesting that the Christian imagination of Flannery O'Connor should be simply balanced with that of Tolkien, as if all we just need is a varied diet. I'll take two helpings of Tolkien with a side of O'Connor, please. These two different ways of writing of expressing the mysteries of the Christian faith are to a certain extent in real tension with one another. One of those tensions that is at the heart of Christianity itself. As Christians, we should long for death since only then we will we be with our savior. But as Christians, we should long for life since life is a gift from our creator to be celebrated to the fullest. Such things are unavoidably mysterious as well as exhilarating. And they remind us of the varied and powerful ways that Christian writers 
as John Paul said so well, make perceptive and as far as possible attractive the world of the spirit, of the invisible, of God. You mentioned Tolkien as an incarnational author, which I think is a great description. Are you making a distinction between incarnational and sacramental? And I've heard both authors described as sacramental, although I'm not sure I know people who are saying that about O'Connor exactly what they mean. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Great. That's a great question. Thanks so much. I do think it's there's an important distinction between incarnational and sacramental, though I'm not sure distinguishing them will help answer the question you're asking, which I think is a, a very interesting one. So let me, um, let me start by saying this. Although I think that the, the pilgrim, the prophetic, is in some tension with the, the stance of the lover, the incarnational, I also think that every Christian writer has some of both, at least some of both. So I think of Flannery O'Connor as at one extreme, but it's not as if she has nothing incarnational about her. So when I'm thinking of incarnational, I'm thinking of the importance of the bodily, especially, um, that incarnate, that fleshiness. Sacramental is a little different. Sacramental is a little broader. For me, sacramentality refers to the way that physicality, physical objects, which can include the body, not just the body, can be means of grace. So I think that both authors do it this have these both these aspects. But let me think about talk about O'Connor for a second, because I think towards the end of your question, you said you weren't sure maybe if we would think of O'Connor as sacramental uh, in certain respects. Um, feel free to follow up if you want to nuance this a little bit in a second. I think of O'Connor as profoundly sacramental in the following way. For her, physical objects, material moments, are crucial steps in the um, expression and acceptance of grace. There, for her, there are always little um, physical moments that allow for grace to break through. They're very, in fact, they're, let me think about this for a second. I can't think of any moment in her writing where she's describing a grace-filled experience of prayer. Uh, I might be mistaken about that, but nothing is coming. Certainly it's not, uh, certainly it's not a common theme. So what does that mean? It means that for her, grace always comes through physical action, physical engagement, the, the physical world. So in that sense, she's sacramental. But she's different. Her sacramentality has a different emphasis than someone like Tolkien in the following sense. For her, I think, those elements of the physical world that are moments of grace for us have very little or she doesn't offer us much intrinsic value for them in themselves. For Tolkien, his sacramental moments are invested with enormous intrinsic beauty and value. His sacraments are ones that you might want to linger over just for themselves. You might forget that grace is the final purpose or the final end. I think for O'Connor, that's much less the case. 
her sacramental moments don't make you want to linger over the sacrament. They want to make you go right through the sacrament, right through it to the moment of grace, to the supernatural. So in brief, I think they both are incarnational, that is focused on the bodily, and sacramental, focused on the physical more generally. But that Tolkien offers us the bodily and the physical in a way that presents primarily its beauty. Whereas O'Connor presents for us the bodily and the physical primarily through the mode of suffering that brings us through that physicality, through that bodily, to something beyond it. Would it be valid to say that Tolkien was writing in a more traditional way, more akin to ancient, ancient myths, while O'Connor was writing in a more modern, somewhat cynical way? And could that be part of the reason why they differ in their attitude toward creation? Let me talk about one way in which I see their writing as emphasizing different literary traditions, if I can put it that way. Um, certainly the mythic is important to Tolkien, but I think for Tolkien, he sees himself as continuing a pre-modern 19th century aesthetic tradition. He sees himself, I think, in the tradition of Newman, in the tradition of the pre-Raphaelites uh, in various respects, so that his writing is sometimes dismissed because it doesn't seem to take account of modernist developments in the 20th century. It doesn't look like 20th century writing in certain respects. So in that sense, I think he's, he's doing something different from O'Connor. O'Connor's writing is very powerful. Um, and I think is taking account, if we can put it that way, of 20th century literary modernist developments. She's writing in the short story form, which is certainly not a 20th century invention, um, but she's, she's within a 20th century mainstream literary culture in a certain way, in certain ways that Tolkien is not. Now, does that influence the way they think about sacramentality? Um, I think the answer to that is, is yes. Although I'd have to think, I'd have to think more carefully about this before I before I decided what all I want to say about this. When Tolkien wants to retrieve, what he wants to retrieve about the pagan, I think, and the mythological, is a kind of appreciation and love of things in themselves. And O'Connor, on the other hand, I, the way I respond to her is in terms of an aspiration for a certain kind of purity, certain kind of um, cleanness, both within her writing uh, and within the, the um, organization of the goals of the short stories or the novels that she's writing. Uh, does, that, does that influence the sacramentality, how we think about that? I think yes. I mean, I think but each of those things, 19th century aesthetics, um, the mythological, the pagan, they invite a kind of delight lingering over material beauty in a way that the spareness of 20th century writing often thinks about in a different way. I don't want to say beauty is not there. That would be an exaggeration. But it's a different kind of expression of the physical world. I think at one point you, you said something to the effect uh, 
that gospels, the gospels are fairy stories. Uh, so I wonder if you could just explain what you meant by that. That was a quotation from Tolkien, from his essay on fairy stories. And Tolkien was particularly thinking at that moment about catastrophe, which is a disaster, but a good disaster, a good catastrophe. And his, uh, at the end of On Fairy Stories is very interesting. Most of the essay is not particularly religious, but the last couple pages, the discussion of the happy ending and the discussion of eucatastrophe takes it right, right into the Christian aesthetic tradition. He suggests that the gospels end with a disaster, but it's a good disaster. The gospels end with a crucifixion, and yet the Gospels end happily. They end with a happy ending. Now, I took that, Tolkien's not, um, not as explicit as I want to be. I want to say that eucatastrophe characterizes Christian fiction as such. Uh, think, for example, those of you who might know a little bit about Chaucer's um, Troilus and Cressida, where Troilus dies at the end, and yet his soul floats up above the earth, and he laughs. He's just been betrayed. It, it, it's a story of, of immense emotional conflict and suffering, and yet it seems to end as a, as a comedy in the old sense, as, as something with a happy ending. Uh, that's, I want to take that idea of eucatastrophe from Tolkien and apply it to Christian literature as such. Could we call the book of Revelation or creation in Genesis as eucatastrophe or um, while the fall of man was disastrous, it led to the coming of Christ. So could we describe it as a good disaster? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Let me just, Revelation, I think is complicated because this comes at the end of the New Testament. Um, Genesis is... Uh, Genesis is complicated. Could, could we speak just of, uh, let's say, the, the story of the creation and fall as a eucatastrophe? Um, that's a very interesting question. I, I think from a Christian perspective, we see its trajectory as moving in a certain way. And so it's, it's easier for us to think of that as a eucatastrophe. Um, there's the prophecy at the end. Uh, and we get we get a disaster, and yet, and yet, as Christians, we see that as an opening to a happy ending in a very special way. If we don't think of it from the Christian perspective, then I think it's much more uh, open, whether or not the first few chapters of Genesis represent a eucatastrophe in Tolkien's terms. There are many historically interesting ways to interpret those first few chapters. Um, some of them are, are more bleak than the Christian tradition would take. So I would say, I mean, I think my short answer is in the, in the providential Christian economy, the fall in Genesis is the kind of eucatastrophe. It's not the final one. It's an intermediate disaster that nevertheless opens onto something better something that allows the fall to be taken up into the providential plan and for us to call it a happy fault. 
uh, which the which the gospels do, or the New Testament does. Um, but without that Christian perspective, I think it's more problematic. Does the Lord of the Rings end in a new catastrophe? And second, who is Mr. Paradise in the river? Those are interesting questions and, and interestingly different questions. Uh, I, I do see a kind of, well, the Lord of the Rings is so large in scope and scale. It's hard for me to say that it has the kind of closure that, say, an O'Connor story does, or, or even that uh, Leaf by Niggle does. There are many different storylines. And Tolkien wrote later, you know, that he was imagining um, this kind of golden age that comes to exist in Middle-earth after the end of Lord of the Rings, but then there would come a new threat that he'd already begun to imagine or discover, a word he kind of preferred, actually to create, that he would discover this. And so you get a kind of cyclical suggestion for Middle-earth, I think. If we think in terms of Frodo, I think it's a U catastrophe. His departure from Middle-earth is melancholic. It's melancholic. Um, it's, it's a happy ending, but it's also, um, it's also a loss. It, it's a the elves leaving Middle-earth is both them achieving something great beyond, but it's also a loss, a loss for themselves, a loss for Middle-earth. So yes, I think it's a catastrophe, at least on, in certain levels and for certain characters. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just say yes to that. Mr. Paradise, I've always thought of him, well, he's certainly his own person, I think, we would we would miss the power of her story if we think of him as um, just an allegorical character. But I I think of him as the pig, so as a demon, um, as picking up on the casting out of the pigs in the story, and the pig that's on the farm. Now now is he the devil? Maybe that in certain respects maybe yes. I mean I think O'Connor really likes to play with. Uh, false philanthropy, I think, in her stories. Moments where characters think they are achieving something good, and yet they're actually frustrating the movement of grace. And I think that that's Mr. Paradise here, and that's what he's doing in the story. I think he does take on another layer of meaning if you think of him, that reference to him as a pig, and his ear is also um, a, a little oddly wounded which mm -hmm. picks up on the pigs earlier in the story. So there's a real, she is drawing a really close connection between him and the physical pigs. I do think his character takes on a, another valuable and interesting layer of meaning if we see him as a representative of the demonic in certain respects. I was struck by your distinction between the two modes in which these authors write. Tolkien as a lover and O'Connor as a pilgrim. I was struck by that partly because uh, I see in Tolkien's work many pilgrims depicted. Uh, for example, Gandalf is actually called the Grey Pilgrim, and Frodo, uh, it seems, uh, is a pilgrim in the sense that the Shire and uh, Middle Earth is uh, not evidently, uh, in the end, saved for him. Uh, his life is a sacrificial one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could even, 
I like the word pilgrim. I also like the word prophetic. So O'Connor's writing, I think, is is prophetically aspirational or aspires to a certain kind of prophecy, uh, whereas Tolkien is aspires to a kind of an expression of love. Now, I said earlier in response to one of the questions that I think all Christian literature has some, must have, I think, some element of the prophetic or the pilgrim and some element of, of the lover. Or even if we could use an older, in the older platonic sense, the erotic, that is the, the drawing up into something transcendent by means of desire. Um, so I think both O'Connor, absolutely, O'Connor and Tolkien have both those things going on in different ways. But nevertheless, I think that Tolkien, um, if I could use a different set of words here, Tolkien gives us an invitation in a certain way, the invitation of the lover or of the beloved. O'Connor wants to startle us, to even shock us. Um, the, the caress is not something that O'Connor finds very useful in her writing. Whereas for Tolkien, tenderness is a central human activity. Um, now, absolutely, there are pilgrims in Middle-earth. Um, I, all of that's very, very well taken. Nevertheless, I think the tone of Tolkien's writing and the content, remember, Tolkien is someone who uh, rejects allegory completely. Uh, even though some, I mean, Leaf by Niggle is a little allegorical. Uh, so Smith the Wooten Major, his, his last published story, but nevertheless, he resists allegory as much as he can. He doesn't want, he doesn't want, um, he's leery of C.S. Lewis's writing for being too allegorical, for example. He wants us to appreciate the value and beauty of the things he's created in their own right. Now, O'Connor's got some of that too, of course, but there's something about her that wants to slap you, wake you up so that you live a life of seriousness and appreciate what's most deeply valuable. And that's, it's not an invitation. It's meant to surprise you. So you mentioned where your, the theme of your talk was that the eucatastrophe was distinctly Christian. Can you think of any um, secular works yeah. that aren't, that don't have explicitly religious themes, that, but that might still have this kind of eucatastrophic um, Let me, in fact, so I have, I'm going to talk about one particular example, which both reveals the potential for secular eucatastrophe, and I think it's limitation. It's limitation. Um, so some of you might be familiar with the Dardenne brothers. They're a Belgian, two uh, Belgian brothers who have made nine films since 1996. They made a couple films before that, as, as well as a bunch of documentaries, but they're not uh, publicly available. Uh, their breakout film was La Promesse, The Promise. Um, Rosetta from 99 won the Palme d'Or, which is the uh, most prestigious uh, film award at the Cannes Film Festival. The Child in 2006, I think it is, also won the Palme d'Or. Um, their films, every one of them, ends with a eucatastrophe. <clears throat> it ends with an intense moment of pain. 
and that pain is redemptive. Uh, let me give you an example. Their most recent film, uh, Young Ahmed, which is about maybe a 13 or 14 year old uh, Muslim boy who is um, who's a terrorist. And the film is about, now his, his, his terrorist activities are on a small scale. He tries to knife a teacher of his and he fails. Uh, but most of the film is about him. He spent some time in, in juvenile delinquency in, in juvenile prison. And he's working through his commitments and he's, he's, he, he gives the appearance of reform, but he's still connect, he's still deeply committed to attacking his teacher for, for complicated reasons. He criticizes her for complicated reasons, which we don't need to go into. But what happens at the end of the film? He escapes juvenile detention. He gets a, <laughs> a sharp object. It's not a knife even. It's, a, it, it's a, something that holds up a flower pot in a wall. And he climbs into the school. He climbs up to an open window. And you understand that he's going to enter the window and try to stab his teacher again. And then he falls. He hits the ground. Um, we don't see him hit the ground, but then we see him. He's obviously very injured. Uh, the teacher he was going to strike comes out, sees him on the ground, and he calls out first to his mother, and then he takes her hand and asks for her forgiveness. Then the movie ends. All of their movies have a similar rhythm like that. Each of them is a hard, painful 90 minutes with no music. Uh, and an, an intense personal relationships. And it ends with a moment of suffering that brings about some kind of redemptive, um, especially interpersonal experience. Now, those are you catastrophic films in that sense. Absolutely. Why do, in what sense are they limited? Well, one of their films, uh, La Promesse, their breakout film from the 90s, ends with a confessional moment between a boy and an older woman whose husband was allowed to die by the boy's father. And she's ascending some steps onto a train platform and he's below her and confesses what happened. This is the very end of the film. The brothers, the Darden brothers, say that they were very careful that the train platform was covered so that you couldn't see the sky during that confessional moment. Why was that the case? Because they didn't want people to reach for a transcendent explanation for what was happening. Yes, it was a Yucatan, yes, it was a moment of redemption. Yes, it was a moment of, of maturity, of, of even we could say spiritual growth, but the Darden brothers are not Christian. They want their they want their eucatastrophe to remain enclosed within within life. So, what's the ultimate eucatastrophe? I want to say that a eucatastrophe expresses the hopefulness, the Christian vision. That hope, its deepest deepest root, is hope in something beyond death. That death is not a conclusive disaster. If you're not Christian, perhaps we could, let's set aside other religions, but if you're the Darden brothers, 
were raised Catholic, but are no longer Christian. Your, your hopefulness that is allowed in your stories is restricted to a temporal horizon. So it's eucatastrophic, but not in the fullest sense that Tolkien is expressing. 